You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by Brad Thor, the number one New York Times bestselling author of 20 thrillers, including Backlash, Spymaster, which was called one of the all-time best thriller novels by the Washington Times, The Last Patriot, Blowback, which was called one of the top 100 killer thrillers of all time by NPR. The Lions of Lucerne, which was called one of the best political thrillers ever by Barnes & Noble. And his newest novel will probably get some of the same accolades. It's called (laughs) Near Dark, which comes out today. So welcome, Brad. Thank you for talking to us here on SpyCast. Well, it's great to be with you, Vince. Thanks for having me. So let me, let me ask kind of your origin story. We kind of want to get at what got you started. So what really made you want to start writing thriller fiction? Did you, did you have an author that you loved that you wanted to emulate and kind of be like? Well, I grew up, my parents were big readers. And so it's funny if you, um, if you ever read the book Freakonomics, you know, we're always told that if you want your children to be good readers, read to them. And in Freakonomics, they blew that up. They said, actually, no. One of the biggest uh, determinants of whether or not your kids are going to be big readers is, do they see you reading as their parents? And do you have books in the home? So I grew up with two parents who loved to read. My dad loved this genre. Uh, so did my mom. I mean, they read Ludlum and Freddie Forsyth and Clancy and all that kind of stuff. And when they would finish books, I'd pick them up and I'd start reading them myself. And Stephen King once said that you should write what you love to read because that's where your passion is. And I would actually add on to that, that if you've spent your lifetime reading in a particular genre, you've developed a PhD in that genre. You know, what you like about it, what you don't like. Um, So I read these books growing up. I've always loved them. And uh, it's something I'd always wanted to do since I was a little boy. And on my honeymoon, I was in TV at the time. I had a travel series on public television called Traveling Light. I was the producer, the writer, and the host. And uh, when I was on my honeymoon, my wife asked, interesting question to wait until the honeymoon to ask, 
what would you regret on your deathbed never having done? And I said, writing a book and getting it published. And she said, okay, when we get home, you need to start carving out two hours, protected time, no internet, no phone, no nothing, two hours a day and start making that dream come true. And the rest is history. Well, I mean, that's, that's quite an interesting story. I mean, there's always people who are asking me, like, how do you get into the publishing world? And it's very different for nonfiction, right? I mean, you, you, you know, I have one book that is a university press where you kind of just go and say, hey, look, it's a finished book. Do you, you like it? Do you want to publish it? And they say, sure, you're not going to, you're going to make like $12 on it, but sure, we'll do it. And then I have another nonfiction book that's a big, you know, Penguin Random House where I go in through an agent. Mm-hmm. How, how hard is it writing thrill when you when your name name recognition is so so important like how how hard is it to get started in this business well one of the things that i had heard so my dad's a marine no longer active but once a marine always a marine and so we grew up understanding the value of uh, grit and determination and one of the lines that i loved hearing uh, and I, I recite it all the time to, to young writers just starting out, is I always ask this question, do you know what the difference is between a published author and a non-published author? And they all look at me and say, what is it? And I said, well, the published author never quit, uh, which is also a term the SEALs use, never quits. You know, that uh, success is the only option, failure is not an option. So that was kind of the uh, ethos at my house, not like great Santini wise, but just that my parents had been living the American dream. My grandfather, uh, my dad's dad was the first one born here. And uh, they believed that if you wanted something badly enough and were willing to apply yourself to it, this is the country where you could make that happen, whatever that was you wanted for yourself. So I always had that determination, but I never, I, I graduated from the University of Southern California and had saved money to go over and do something Vince, no American had ever done before. I was going to go to Paris and write a novel. I don't know if you know this. It had never been done before. <laughs> it was the first guy to ever come up with this idea. I got about three chapters into writing my first thriller, and I quit because I had this little voice that I think all of us do to greater or lesser degrees in the back of my head, and it was saying, you know what? This may not be any good, this book. You may just be setting yourself up for embarrassment. Maybe it's just better you don't do it, then you won't embarrass yourself. And I gave in. I gave in, I shipped my laptop back home, I used the money that I had saved in college to travel around, and then that led to an idea for the, my public television travel show, because I thought traveling made me a better American to see my country from abroad uh, and, and see different ways of life uh, and to learn how lucky I was to have been born in this country. So I went to TV, and then you know, years later when I was, uh, with my uh, with my wife on our honeymoon, that was when she asked me that question, and that that's what made all the difference. I don't know that I ever really would have taken that leap if I hadn't, you know, coughed up my deepest, darkest secret. I mean, you're a newlywed. Do I want my wife to think I'm a wimp and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go after the dream because I'm scared? You know, my my man card was kind of on the table, but God bless her. That that really uh, gave me the the freedom and also kind of the push I needed to go do it. And you know, here we here we are talking, you and me, twenty books later. Well, let me let me ask you about the new book. Now you brought that up. the 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 book is called Near Dark, and again, it comes out. If you're listening to this the day this podcast is posted, it's out today. So run out and grab it wherever you can. the uh, The premise of this is not brand new. It's not like a 
you know, going back to Clancy, it's not a red storm rising. It's part of a series that you've been working on for quite some time. So can you give us without, you know, giving any, give us the book flap plot line of near dark. Sure. Sure. So the, the great thing about my thrillers, and I've done 20 of them, 19 with the same protagonist, and then one was a spinoff series. You can pick up any one of my books anywhere along the line and jump right into it. You don't need to have read book one to appreciate Near Dark. You can start with Near Dark, work your way backwards. It's They are meant to stand alone. Uh, but it's interesting. Last year, when I was wrapping up last year's thriller, Backlash, we got asked by a major retailer, hey, Brad, would you do a bonus chapter? Because we'd like to offer our customers a special edition. And my answer is always yes with my partners when I work with people. I'm, I'm not a no guy. I'm a yes guy. And I'll figure it out how to make it happen. So I said to my uh, somebody on my team, I said, oh, my God, now I've committed myself to an additional chapter. I finished the book. It doesn't need an additional chapter. And I started thinking about what I love about the Marvel movies, where you watch the movie, the credits come up, and then all of a sudden there's another scene at the end. And I said, okay, I'm going to do this. And what I did last year was I set a scene of a European guy, young banker looking type with a personal security detail in the third largest city in Vietnam in this kind of French colonial home with this crazy Vietnamese ex-intelligence officer and they're counting out $10 million. He refused, he's just an eccentric guy. He's got a bunch of naked women because they can't steal the money, counting it out. He won't use currency, uh, you know, counters and everything because he's just so eccentric. And basically at the end of that chapter, you find out that he's putting a, uh, that a hundred million dollar bounty is being put on my protagonist. And the, the European guy in the suit says, you know, whatever you do, don't mess this up. In fact, don't just pick one assassin, task all your assassins to go take them out. And whoever gets to them first gets the, gets the bounty, gets the prize. Well, that was great. The retailer loved it, fans loved it, but it put me in a hard position, which is, I can't pretend that part of the Marvel universe doesn't exist. Yes. I can't just start this year's book and have my protagonist wake up with the old soap opera trope. Whoo, what a bad dream. Can you imagine what it would have been like if I had a $100 million bounty put on my head? So I had to take that chapter and make it the prologue for this year's thriller. Now, what's really tough, and I'm sure you know this, and a lot of the listeners to this podcast know this, if you have somebody like my protagonist who is extremely well trained, has a lot of experience in tradecraft, this is somebody that's kind of gone from the special operations world over to more kind of the intel side of things, if he chucks his electronic devices and doesn't want to get found and he stays kind of off the grid, he's not, you know, he's not getting picked up on facial recognition anywhere, he can go to ground and you're going to have a hard time finding this guy. So this put me in a tough position because I had to have, I wanted this book to be about the $100 million bounty and my guy basically getting to the bottom of it. And so I talked to a friend of mine that's done a bunch of different stuff, special operations, kind of ground branch stuff, uh, Intel, you know, running human networks and everything. And I said, what would you do? He said, Brad, if somebody put a $100 million contract out on me, I can tell you right away, the only way to kill the contract is to kill the person who put it out on you. He said, that's all I'd be focused on is how do I find the guy? So it was interesting because originally when I came up with this idea, Vince, I thought it would be all these assassins. I thought this book is going to be my most insane book ever because it's just going to be waves of assassins. Like every time the guy turns the corner, there's going to be another <laughs> one. Well, it's not the way it works out. And right. my books are really, you know, I pride myself on short, cinematic, crisp chapters. This is supposed to be entertainment. This is not, uh, I, I've had kind of a, 
ongoing disagreement with with somebody who's out of the agency now who's uh trying to do consulting and stuff in hollywood and i'm like you know you, uh, i get it I, if, if this was in real life my guy in this particular scene let's just make up a scene he's got eight cutouts he's got to work his way through before he gets to the person he needs to get to but nobody's going to sit through eight different reading about eight different meetings before this guy gets to where he has to go. Or like you and I joked uh, about the surveillance detection runs, uh, you know, it's not, nobody's going to sit through three bus rides, two cab right. rides. In the, you can't do it. I'm in the entertainment business. This is fiction. So you know, sitting uh, on the, sitting on a park bench for 12 hours, reading a book. And yeah, that's not going to be <laughs> no, it's all, not that, gonna... all that interesting. It's not going to work. So what I did this time is I said, okay, I'm going to have this guy, because basically this guy's at the lowest point in his career. He's slowly drinking himself to death in the Florida Keys. And one of the assassins, because he doesn't know the contract's out on him, comes to get him. And that lights everything up. He figures out somebody's out to get him. He also finds out that a colleague of his, uh, a, an intelligence operative in Norway, has been killed. And he thinks it's connected. He thinks the guy, the assassin that came for him in Key West, got to him by going after his colleague in Norway, his one big, his best contact in the Nordics. And so this starts this whole race of can he, by investigating the death of his contact in Norway, looking into it, can he track down and piece together who put the contract out on him? So it's really, it's cat and mouse, but the mouse is chasing the cat kind of a thing. And it's, it was a lot of fun to write this. Well, it's a lot of fun to read too. I, 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 I told you this before. There's, there's, in our world, there's two kinds of writers that tend to be predominant, right? There's those that are former intelligence officers who have been writing intelligence briefings for the last 30 years and can't write their way out of a paper bag when it comes to <laughs> writing a book that's going to be... who have no intelligence background and don't want to read. And then there are authors who take the time to learn anything about it, who write really entertaining books that are just nonsense. And then there's like the 2% of authors, and I, I put you in this category, and that's why we're talking to you, that <laughs> can write and know a little bit about what they're writing about, which is wonderful to find. And I, and I think that, and I want to, you've already mentioned a little bit about this, but I want to talk to you about creation and development of characters, because you mentioned how you've talked to friends and others like that. In, in books, unlike TV, TV and movies, you just have to show what people do. In books, you got to get inside their head. You got to think about what mm -hmm. they're thinking and feeling. And that's more difficult than just asking somebody, what would you do in this situation? So how much time do you take talking to people about what's going through your head in this moment? What are you thinking? What are you feeling? There's a little bit of that. It's, it's difficult because it depends on the personality. Everybody that I've got in my own human network, my own professional network that I use as resources for the novels, it's made up of all different sorts of men and women. And I would actually say that for the most part, they're probably not very prone to talk about their feelings. That's just not how they're wired. Yeah. You know, we, we don't sit around and have cups of constant kind of tea and, and chat about how we feel. So it's tough. I have to take a certain amount of artistic license. And this is probably what I have found to be over the last three books, Spymaster, Backlash, and now Near Dark. This has been the most challenging for me as a writer because I am, I am peeling back my protagonist more and more. He's gone through some incredibly difficult things willing to do it for the country. Uh, his, his philosophy is, you know, if the other side is not willing to play by any rule book, then, then at least a couple of us shouldn't have to either. It's the only way to kind of level that playing field uh, against uh, some con considerably bad actors. So a lot of getting in the head 
Um, it, it takes, you know, a couple pitchers of beer, a few martinis, whatever, where I can loosen up some of these folks to say, okay. And normally, believe it or not, I have to, it, it's almost like role playing a little bit where sometimes people don't want to talk about these certain things. And I have to create a scenario and say, okay, let's say it's this. Don't give me one of your real life things because I, I get it. That was very painful. That was tough. I was just chatting with a friend the other day, an ex-agency guy that, um, had only read the first couple of chapters because we just posted an excerpt uh, on my website for Near Dark and he had read the first couple of chapters and he goes, I can't tell you how triggered I was by this. He said, because I had, after 9-11, he said, I was gone from my family for a solid year. And he said, so many of the things just in the opening of your book brought all this stuff back up for me. And I was like, okay, well, I did it right then. If you're having that emotional response, if there's that resonance there. But a lot of times I have to make up scenarios, Vince, for people to feel more comfortable. Instead of me saying, when was the time you felt most afraid or felt most vulnerable? I sometimes find it's easier to say, okay, this is the scenario I'm painting in the book right now. What do you think you'd be doing here? What would be going through your head and that kind of stuff? Because it's almost, does that make sense? It's almost like yeah, you don't absolutely. have to reveal anything in, that you may, might feel is, is embarrassing or suggest that you're weak. And this is not just the guys. I've got ladies I talk to in the community that are some, some pretty tough ass kickers that, that don't want to get into, you know, this happened or that happened. Or, or I, I, so when I create these scenarios, and by the way, that would be great if somebody wants to share that with me. But if I'm asking you a question, it's because I needed to fit the scene I'm writing in the book anyway. Right. So I'm not a psychoanalyst. I just need to know how does it work for this scene? What do you think would be going on here? Uh, you know, one of the one of the greatest stories I ever read, and I forget whose book it was. I think it was uh, The Human Factor, Ishmael Jones, the uh, the case officer. I don't know if you – he's the guy that got in all – one of the guys. Everybody's getting in trouble now for not running stuff through or not waiting for the review board to say okay on the book. But he was doing, he was talking about somebody, the whole HIPAA thing at the agency yeah. where, you know, you, they can't say we're not going to send you here because you've got diabetes or whatever. So he had this whole interesting story about some guy, they were deep in, they were deep in Indian country. This guy basically had a seizure behind the wheel. He knew that he was sick. There were particular people at the agency that knew he had this underlying condition, but he still went on the assignment anyway. And there was nothing the medical side of the agency could do because of HIPAA. They couldn't reveal this for some reason. So it was that was an interesting story about how even you can be frightened because this guy passes out behind the wheel. All of a sudden, your your whole operation is blown, and you're worried about: Am I going to survive? Am I getting out of this alive? Because now we've just drawn attention to ourselves by driving this truck off the side of the road. And how the hell do we get this guy out of there? So sometimes I'll get interesting stories like that. Well, they'll say, okay, this happened downrange. I can't give you all the details. I can't tell you what country, but let me tell you, this was pretty scary. And you ought to weave something like this into the book. That's That and my fictional scenarios is how I get a lot of what goes into the head and the heart of the characters. What, let me, what... I think I grew up reading Tom Clancy and that kind of is the person that I kind of keep coming back to in this case, because Jack Ryan as a character really doesn't evolve all that much. And you've already mentioned that there's a massive tragedy that hits up several of your characters. And actually that's something that kind of binds some of them together is they, they all had someone very close to them killed. How much do you try to evolve your character? How much to change over time? And, and the kind of the second part of this, how do you know when it's time to, 
jettison one character and replace with another, or even a universe. Like, when, how do you know when the, the Scott Horvath series is over? Or is it just something you kind of make up as you go along? It's a great question because it's what I'm wrestling with now. So character development is an interesting thing. If I go see Indiana Jones, I don't want him to be any different at the end of the movie than he was at the beginning. I right. want my guy. He's solid. I know he's going to get the girl. He's going to get the treasure. Everything's going to work out. There's going to be some clever little things that happen along the way. Same thing with Bond, right? I don't necessarily want Bond to get too woke or too whatever, uh, you know, like he's going to all of a sudden run a daycare center uh, <laughs> instead of working for Her Majesty's uh, service. So that that really is the tough thing. Now, over the last three books, I've done something really interesting and it's resonated with fans and it's really, people have said, God, it's just the book get better and better. I've, I've had my, my main character's boss go through a particular medical thing, which basically took him out of the game and put my character, you were the handpicked successor, you've got to run things now. And him saying no. And everybody in the book was shocked, you know, but this guy is an action guy. Like some of my friends who, you know, I've got guys that I know that probably shouldn't be going downrange anymore, but they cheat. They're on performance enhancing drugs. They're doing everything they can to, to, to stay physically just superb. I mean, they're in incredible shape. I mean, these are, these are guys that you would not be expecting to be doing what they're doing, but they just can't unplug. They don't want to come home. Um, and I thought that was an interesting thing to work with in the books, but there's been a lot of raw, a lot of uncovering of different elements of my protagonist. And just when you think he can't take any more, I throw a little bit more at him. But now, got Near Dark coming out, I have to think about what does the next one look like? And sometimes we liken in my office what I do to like an amusement park. Every year I build a new ride, right? So I want you to come and you know, I don't know what the new ride's gonna be, but I know Thor always delivers a great one. And this is hard because I don't wanna retire the character. My readers want to keep coming back. Uh, and the publisher certainly wants you to continue uh, giving the, the, the readers what they want. And in essence, I don't work for Simon & Schuster, I work for the readers. So right. if they want more of this character, then it's incumbent upon me, it's my job to figure out, okay, how do I how do I put them through something else that nobody's seen before? That's that's you know that's the Midwestern son of a U.S. Marine kind of guy that I am, which is you constantly have to be improving. You cannot rest on your laurels. You have to get better every time. There's a lot of stress in that. There's a lot of stress, but that stress and that anxiety uh, pushing through that that's where the grit comes in, and I think that's what makes the who was it that said. Uh, I think it was Dorothy Parker that said, I don't like writing. I love having written. <laughs> it's very yeah. true for me too. Nothing feels better than finishing the book. I mean, it's the best feeling in the world. Writing it is, it can be like pulling teeth, but it's, well, it's what the fans want. And you got to give them what they want and give them the absolute best you're capable of. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. 
They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Let me ask you one more kind of writing nuts and bolts question. Does, does your book certainly have an element of real life in here, right? So it's not necessarily, uh, you know, over, you know, you're not, again, not Clancy where you're spending three chapters talking about the bolt on a nuclear submarine. But yeah. you, you certainly have put a lot of research into this. You, you mentioned that you you followed a unit around Afghanistan. You've done obviously location research on some of these. You've talked to all sorts of different people. But there is certainly isn't, again, an element of, of real life that I assume comes from reading yourself. So for your writing, does reading fiction or nonfiction help you the most? Well, you know, when I'm writing, I don't want to read, I don't want to be reading fiction. I don't because I don't want somebody else's voice to accidentally slip into my work. So I stay away from fiction. Fiction is my is my treat. That's my that's that's my my comfort food. I love fiction. But the nonfiction uh, is the stuff that, because I'm always reading. You cannot be a good writer without being an incredible reader. You just have to be voracious. And I am. So, you know, I've got uh, so many books here. And I think of, uh, I'm looking at a ton of them. Uh, when I did Spy Master, one of the best books I read, a buddy of mine from the Defense Intelligence Agency had recommended a book called Comrade J, which was about uh, uh, a Russian intelligence officer uh, that eventually came over to our side and it was fantastic and this insight and everything. And uh, when I learned about residences and I, it just all of a sudden with all the stuff I'd read about the Russians and all that kind of stuff, this book really hit home. So it taught me a lot. So I try to work on books like this. I mean, I've got, what else do I have here? I've got, uh, what is it? James Olson's book, Fair Play, The Moral Dilemmas of Spying. Great book. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, Ghost, Confessions of a Counterterrorism Agent by Fred Burton, who's a, just a great guy. It's a great book. And then uh, I, I, I was friends with Dewey Claridge, as you and I have talked about before, and Dewey's book, A Spy for All Seasons, that he wrote to pay off his legal bills after the Iran-Contra, is a fabulous book. So I'm really, it's an embarrassment of riches. I'm, I'm Ghost Wars. In fact, one of my favorite, favorite books that takes place in Afghanistan is first in, all about the CIA team that went in um, and how they uh, linked up, that's uh, Gary Schroen's book, where they linked up with uh, the Northern Alliance people in, uh, in Afghanistan to take it to the Taliban. Just really, really neat stuff. So that's, when I'm writing my books, I'm immersing myself in that world and I'm doing it in nonfiction. Again, because right. I don't want somebody else's ideas or their voice in the fiction realm to creep in. So I have to, I have to cut out that fiction. But I'll, there's other fiction I'll read while I'm writing uh, that's completely not attached. Like I, a couple of years ago, I read All the Light We Cannot See, 
which just was so beautiful, no matter how, how much, how beautifully I thought I was writing in my, my thrillers, it didn't come to that level because it's a different book. But uh, so if it's outside the genre, yes, then I'll, I'll cheat a little bit with a little bit of fiction during my uh, writing schedule. <laughs> uh, and you know, you know, you're allowed, you're allowed to do what yeah. you want. So, so your, your books are constantly full of twists and turns. I mean, this is kind of the essence of a thriller writer. And that's what makes them compelling spy thrillers. Is me as someone who almost certainly never write one, I wonder, are these planned out or do you sometimes surprise yourself as you're going along? How much do you map out the plot of these books before you start? All right, so to make my answer sound really smart, Vince, I'm gonna <laughs> quote Robert Frost, okay? How about that? I'll mask my BS answer with some Robert Frost, which is no joy in the writer, no joy in the reader. No surprise in the writer, no surprise in the reader. No tears in the writer, no tears in the reader. I do not like outlining. I tried it once. Uh, Dan Brown is a, is a buddy of mine and Dan and I have the same agent. And my agent uh, said, hey, Dan, would you be willing to share the Da Vinci Code outline with Brad? Because he's thinking maybe that'd be a way for him to go to do outlining. And Dan is such a lovely guy. He's like, yeah, you can't show it to anybody else, but yeah, I'll let you see it. And so I got to see all the scenes that were left out of Da Vinci and all this kind of stuff it was very cool. But I tried to do that for a novel and it took all of the joy and the surprise out of it for me writing it. And I eventually, I, I eventually trashed it. I got rid of it. I, I said, I can't do this. I want to have the experience writing the book that you're going to have reading it. I want my palms to sweat, my heart to pound, me to kind of be looking over my shoulder like, is this really happening? It doesn't work for me unless it's exciting. And I don't know it's exciting unless I'm living it in the moment. And outlining takes that away from me. And I constantly paint myself into a corner. And I joke that I go home and my wife can tell by the look on my face if it's a red wine night or a bourbon night. And uh, <laughs> she always tells me, don't worry. You're, you'll figure it out tomorrow. You always do. Um, but that's hard. It's incredibly stressful. It produces a lot of anxiety in me as a writer because I don't know what's going to happen next. And there's no, there's no manual for writing a novel, right? So this really is pulling order out of chaos. And I don't know till the book is done and I get it beyond the people in my immediate circle, my wife, my agent, my editor who says, oh, it's a great book, best book you've ever written. Nah, I, not till it gets further out where people don't have any skin in my game do I start paying attention to the reviews. So for instance, Near Dark, uh, there is a, a really cool uh, blogger, a reviewer called The Real Book Spy. And he had raved about my book Backlash last year. And secretly, this is the guy, he, all he does is read thrillers. So this secretly was the guy, I wanted to hear what he thought of uh, Near Dark because last year he made Backlash's best book of the year and my main character, his most lethal and favorite character of the year. So I won both categories and he said, there's no way Thor will top this. Well, he got an advanced copy of Near Dark and before he even reviewed it, he was tweeting. He couldn't help but start raving about the book. And he said, this is quite possibly the best book I've ever reviewed on this site. And I, that was the one I was waiting for because he's, like I said, no skin in my game. And, I, I, and he knows the genre better probably than almost anybody else I know. So that was really great feedback to get. But it's tough when you're writing it because I agonize over every word, every sentence, every paragraph, and you really don't know. Um, I had somebody once tell me there's a psychological term for, for what I'm explaining here in my process. And uh, I had a, 
a buddy who is a psychologist say it's really unique you have the i don't know if it's the amateur of the artist or something like this but if you can remain an artist a successful artist who does not believe the press they get who comes to each new project as if nobody knows who you are and this is the one that you have to stake your claim with that's very rare with artists particularly somebody who's got 20 novels uh, to care that much about the work and to worry over the work that much uh, and I'm blanking on what the term is because it's very it would have been a nice bookend to the Robert Frost to end with this very eloquent uh, psychological term. I could have could have just ended the interview right there. I could have said that's it. I can't, it doesn't get any better than this. Thanks for having me on. So let me let me ask you about bad guys because bad guys are always um, you know that to me they're they're much more fun than the heroes. I mean if you you got a great hero who's going through and karate chopping everybody with no real problem then the, the book tends to be kind of boring. And the, of course, the best stories are the ones with well thought out, well developed bad guys, whether it's Hannibal Lecter, Darth Vader, or anybody in between. The Russians are such great bad guys. I mean, it's, it's, it's a wonderful, you've been writing long enough that we've kind of gone from, uh, there's been a bit of a pendulum that swung, you know, from the kind of the Cold War mentality to certainly, uh, you know, every book written in the early 2000s was about, you know, Arab or, or mm -hmm. some kind of terrorist bad guy. Is it refreshing to be able to move away from reading and writing about terrorists to just the, the, the creme de la creme of baddies, the Russians? <laughs> it is. And I got, I, you know, I saw the writing on the wall with the Muslim fundamentalists and everything. And I did some really cool stuff where Abu Nidal, who was the world's most wanted terrorist before Osama bin Laden, I had him hand the reins of his organization over to his kids. And I tried to get unique and fresh takes on that whole kind of Islamic terror stuff. So the books would be evergreen and exciting and feel fresh and different than what everybody else was doing. But yeah, the Russian stuff is very, very interesting, right? It's a kleptocracy. Uh, you've got all these oligarchs. It's There's a lot of money there, not a lot of, uh, uh, not a lot of rules. Uh, and it's a fascinating place to uh, to draw particularly uh, bad characters, villains from. So I actually pulled up a guy. I was sitting in my office saying, all right, what am I going to do for the bad guy here? And I, again, this is like the Marvel Universe, my books. I always have to remember, okay, what did I do eight books ago? Because you will have fans. I always joke that I'm customer service. Uh, you know, people don't ring up Simon and Schuster to say, wait a second, eight books ago, your author. No, they reach out to me on Facebook and Twitter. And I reached back to grab a guy that I had just had like one chapter with several books ago. And I said, that's gonna be my guy. And the readers who have read that, you don't need to have read the earlier book uh, to appreciate this bad guy. Cause I never, it was so quick. I just made mention of him, and there's a little action scene. This book, I really, flesh them out and it'll be fun for readers uh, to, to experience this bad guy, whether you read my other book, Foreign Influence or not. And I was trying to think with this book, okay, everybody is the hero and the villain, or everybody's the hero in their, their own story. Even a villain thinks, you know, this is why I'm doing this. I've got my reasons, all this kind of stuff. But I was looking for, uh, because I have a lot of female readers as well as male readers. And I really wanted this guy to resonate as being bad with his, uh, with my uh, female readers. And I, I came up with an idea that I thought was just despicable that uh, even, even male readers would cringe, but female readers would hate this guy from the first time they saw him. And I played with it and my wife was like, this guy's disgusting, he's <laughs> terrible, <laughs> terrible. 
And I always joke, I call my wife Zorro because she's got this red pen and she reads the manuscript before anybody else. And she goes through and scratches out whole paragraphs. This has got to come out. This has got to come out. And she just wrote icky next to this guy when he first <laughs> appeared. So I knew I, knew I had done something right because she hadn't written that before. So, but yeah, I got the Russians in this one. And I've been concerned just uh, geopolitics are my baseball. So that's what drives me. I do these international kind of political thrillers they're more geared towards the espionage side than they are the government side. But, you know, we live in interesting times, not leave the COVID out of it, but, you know, we've had two very long wars, Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, and we've got kind of a revanchist, not kind of, a revanchist uh, Russia. And you look at this and say, boy, what are the stakes? And I think most Americans don't realize with the Article 5 of the NATO charter that an attack on one NATO member is an attack on all. If the Russians, let's say, went after a tiny uh, Baltic NATO member state, would the, American, would the American public be willing to send their sons and daughters to, uh, to, to liberate a, uh, a place, a country that they couldn't even find probably on a globe? You know, these yeah. are some real serious considerations that we've we we should be talking about. In and Putin knows it, so and that's so. When I started getting into some of this stuff uh, a few years ago, and I was doing my research, and I found out, oh my God, there's one tiny little island uh, in the Baltic that if the, uh, the Swedish island that if the Russians got a hold of it, they prevent any ships from coming in. Well, you certainly can't fly any planes there because the Russian air defenses will take those down. And then I found out that one of our biggest problems, if we tried to move uh, men and materials from you know, Germany up through Poland and up through the Sawaki Gap in the Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia area, the railroad gauge changes. Right. So you have to take everything off the trains and put them on new trains. And those are all sabotage points that the Russians have got all mapped out. I mean, there's all these fascinating things. And I said, I can't believe this. This is like Le Carre all over again, all of these little details that I'm revealing in the books and people are like, wow, I didn't know that, I didn't know that, wow, this is really exciting. And yeah, if it cooked off in that part of the world, we'd be in a lot of trouble. It would be, the, it would be. Yeah, no, ahead. I was gonna say, the, the most interesting thing is that we, we looked at it as, that, as an advantage during the Cold War, is it would take the Russians a, a long time to actually push west because the railroad gauge mm -hmm. changed. And it was one of these things like, well, they're gonna have to out, offload all their T-72s and put them on a different train. And, and now, everyone kind of forgot that and you know forgot the fact that it makes life very very difficult even though poland is a tank superhighway you know once you get to the baltic states things change pretty dramatically and you talk about this question about nato article 5 is something to, to become we have the conversations during the cold war about where were we willing to exchange new york to protect london yes you know where, where, i mean that's that's forget the Baltics, you know, forget the fact that we're, you know, Riga, no, London, Paris, yeah. you know, Berlin. These were questions that were at the height of the Cold War. And, and I agree with you that, you know, it, people aren't thinking about these as much as they probably should. And, you know, I, I, I give them a pass because there's a whole hell of a lot going on in the world right now. Yeah. <laughs> there's tons. I, I excuse Absolutely. people for not thinking about Estonia. 
Um, there's fun things to set around the world. There's there's things other than Iraq and Afghanistan. And yeah. uh, so this stuff is really, really fun for me. So they're almost as uh, I, I, Politico said that uh, about my books that I was kind of rebooting uh, the Cold War era style thriller for a new era of, uh, you know, readers, this new time we're living in. We're kind of seeing this stuff that made those books, like by Freddie Forsyth and Le Carre and all that kind of stuff, really, really fun to read. There's a lot of high stakes. These are interesting locations. The characters certainly are interesting. And it's less a clash of the, you know, the the whole Islamic world against the West sort of a thing, which I, even I'm tired of reading those books. You know what I mean? Right. Well, let me let me talk to you a little bit about where the world of fiction and nonfiction come together. And this was you were a member of the Department of Homeland Security's red team. And there's some certainly in our audience, we have a very educated audience and a lot of them work in this world, but there's some that don't know what, what we're talking about when we talk about a red team. This, this is obviously a very important job that you did, but I wanna know how much fun you had doing it also. Does this, seem, this seems like you're getting thrown into a room with some of the most creative minds in America and kind of a carte blanche to be crazy. So, so kind of talk us through that a little bit. Okay. So after 9-11, when DHS got stood up, um, they put into place what I, what I think is one of the most forward-thinking and aggressive programs I've ever seen the government do, and it was called the Analytic Red Cell Unit. Basically, the federal government realized well before the 9-11 commission was ever convened that the September 11th attacks happened because of a failure of imagination on our part. And they said, we are never going to be caught with our creative pants down again. So to get outside that Beltway mode of thinking, they said, let's bring people into the Beltway from outside. Let's bring in creative people like me, Michael Bay, the director of the Transformer movies. He did the Benghazi movie, 13 Hours. And they had all the alphabets in the soup there. There were some really fascinating people that they paired us up with. And they wanted us to help think about different uh, methodologies for terrorist attacks, different locations, targets. Uh, there's even some stuff where they were feeding us things. What would you do if you had X, Y, and Z, which was never explained why they chose X, Y, and Z. I, I actually wondered, were these little shreds of intel that they had and they were trying to figure out how these puzzle pieces fit together without the box and the picture on the top of the box. Um, so that's what the Red Cell program was all about. And I, I joke that it's the Las Vegas of government programs because what happens in the Red Cell stays in the Red <laughs> Cell. I couldn't use anything that I developed there for my books. In fact, I had come up with one scenario that I was really concerned with. And so we, we wargamed this scenario out and everything. And then uh, a while later, almost precisely to the details of what I was talking about in there, the, uh, that kind of attack everything about it similar happened someplace else in the world and i reached out to my person at dhs and i said okay this is all over the news can i say that you know we war game this and and they said no you can't we don't tell anybody you got brought in here because we like the way you think uh and no you can't go out and say this was one of the scenarios that we developed in the red cell so uh but that's basically what that was was to help the united states stay four to five steps ahead of the bad guys and as the son of a marine i was really honored to be asked to serve my country not by picking up a rifle but by just using my my creativity my gray matter well, why, why? I mean, there's a lot of really smart people who work for the government and the intelligence community and the Pentagon and other places. What makes 
people who create fiction, whether it's like you said, Michael Bay is a movie director, or you, I know people like Max Brooks has done this in certain circumstances and others. What makes you kind of the perfect people? Do they, maybe this is a softball question, but maybe there's something deeper than that. You know, what, 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 what kind of, is it because you don't really have any kind of, you have no limitations to the way you're thinking? Well, you know, listen, one of the big problems with 9-11 was the stovepiping of information, right? So that was a that was a problem. Part of me wondered if the appeal to have like me, Michael Bay, Brad Meltzer and all this kind of stuff is that we weren't steeped in any kind of bureaucratic ideology. We weren't going to look at the next threat by, you know, we weren't going to fight the next threat by looking in the rearview mirror, which is, you know, you look at World War II and the French and it's going to look just, if they come, it's going to look just like World War One and uh, I don't know if that was part of it. It could be that the budgets were so big that they were like, okay, how, you know, and they were being told, don't hold back, put together crazy exotic programs, but give us the leg up on the bad guys. Um, I wasn't on that side. I was the guy that got the invitation. It was almost like out of a Hollywood action movie. I was yeah. living in Park City and I was up in the mountains in a place my cell phone never worked. <laughs> it worked. And I got the call to come to DC. I mean, it was like straight out of a movie. Um, I, I'd like to think it's because we have no rules on us and we haven't been part of the bureaucracy, whether that's, you know, military bureaucracy or the intel community or even coming out of kind of a, a law enforcement background, whether it's at the FBI or whatever. I, I just think they wanted some people to really shoot them some, some interesting, unusual, yet plausible. That was the big thing. And it, you know, you gotta be careful. You get a bunch of artists together. It's like herding cats. And right. I, I was really impressed with how they kept everybody on track because there were a few of them in there, a few of the artists that, man, they were really, uh, they were really good at getting them to not go off on tangents and stuff like that. But I, I, I can't tell you why they decided to reach out to us. You know, there was always that thing about the one Clancy book. I forget, wasn't it like a Japanese pilot who flew right. the plane into like a State of the Union address or something like that? So I don't know if, but I also know that they had war games something at the Pentagon about an airplane and everything, but the, that could have, it could have been because of Clancy, because Clancy had kind of foreseen something like that. And they're like, you better get a bunch of Clancy's in here. We yeah. don't want the public getting pissed. I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, and it does sound like a softball question, but I want to, I, I want to give credit that somebody took a chance, which you don't always see in government. It's normally right. cover your ass and make sure you get that promotion um, so the fact that they were willing to think that far outside the box, um, I, I, listen, it'll, it'll always be one of the greatest honors in my life that while they were thinking outside the box, they said, that Thor's pretty good at that. Let's bring him in. And, and, just, maybe, and maybe it's because DHS was a brand new agency that really didn't have that decades of bureaucracy weighing it down. It kind of, people were looking for new and innovative ideas with a new agency. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's much, much maligned to DHS now because it didn't take very long for the bureaucracy to catch up, but yeah. in the very beginning, it was you know new and shiny and, and doing a lot of interesting things. So before I before we finish, Brad, I want to ask you about current events and and the difficulty of, you know, taking something happening now and applying it into your book because of you know in my opinion, I kind of think, you know, what if no one cares about it? It takes two years to write a book. You can never necessarily predict what's going to happen two years from now. So the whole world has changed, right? It's obviously not going to go back to normal because of the COVID situation, because of the pandemic that is a true pandemic, you know, killing 
hundreds of thousands around the world. I, I can imagine there are, there are fiction writers all over the place, whether it's TV, movies, or books, who are making this a major plot point going forward. Is this something that you are going to integrate, or is it something so transient? <laughs> is it something so transient that you don't want to take the chance that when you know the next book, whatever it's going to be called, everyone's like, oh, he's, really, he's writing about that virus thing? Well, you know what, when, uh, at the risk of sounding like a, a Ludlum plot, I refer to the, or uh, a Ludlum book title, I refer to this as the Bin Laden predicament. I never wrote about Bin Laden because I knew eventually he was going to show up dead. We were eventually going to get him. There is, I'm not touching, so first and foremost, I want you to have book in the hand, toes in the sand. Be ripping through my book, having a great read, really enjoying it. That I'm in the entertainment, and more importantly, I'm in the escape business. I don't want to write about COVID for two reasons. Number one, we could have a vaccine tomorrow and it could be gone. And I don't want to have my next book come out. And why would I want to read about this? COVID's gone. I know how this book ends. And the other thing is, is like I said, I'm selling escape. I want to give people a right. way to get away from what's going on. And if this thing does, there was just somebody, uh, Johns Hopkins, uh, while there was just an article the day before you and I did this podcast together where he said, oh, you know, it could be years that we're doing masking and social distancing. I don't know what that's going to look like, but I know that when I pick up a book, I'm picking up a book, if it's fiction, to escape. And the last thing I want to do is be reminded, I did a, a hemorrhagic fever in my book, Code of Conduct. And I did a bioterrorism weapon in my book, Blowback. And those are really interesting, scary things, but you weren't running away from a bio, uh, bioterrorism event in real life and you weren't dealing with a rampant uh, hemorrhagic fever either. Uh, so yeah, I'm not gonna touch COVID with, I wouldn't in real life touch it with a 10 foot pole. I ain't gonna touch <laughs> it in the fiction world with a 10 foot pole. I want people to forget about COVID while they're reading my thrillers. So you're not going to give us any plot lines, but have you ever already, already started thinking about the next one? Or are you still focused on getting information about out Near Dark? It's, you know what, it's really hard because I raised that bar for myself. I've got, it's going to take, it's going to take some more work. I'm touring for this book, virtually touring for this book now and doing media and doing podcasts and stuff like that. But I've put my characters through the ringer so viciously that I've got to say to myself, okay, what are my bosses? What do the readers want next? And back to that kind of analogy of a theme park, I know they want a great ride. So uh, David Morrell, who is, he calls himself Rambo's daddy. I love David, great author. And he wrote Rambo First Blood. Mm -hmm. um, he talks a lot about that responsibility to, to the reader and wanting to give them a great ride. But the idea has to propel you as the writer through the year or year plus of writing that manuscript. So I've got a couple of ideas I'm toying with. And maybe I'll get back into a corner where I have to do a bonus chapter again this year. Hasn't happened yet, but it could happen right at the end. And then that'll be the jumping off point for next year. But I, I, I've got a couple of ideas, but I haven't drilled down on the one that I'm the most passionate about because right. that's what matters. No joy in the writer, no joy in the reader. Well, the new thriller is Near Dark. It comes out today. If you're listening to this podcast, when we drop it, if you're listening to the podcast later on, the book's been out. So what are you waiting for? You should have already gotten it by now. The author is Brad Thor. Brad, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here on SpyCast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Vince. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.